obviously, when you think about this, it's not something trendy, you know, like everybody's tired, sick and tired of politics, but we need to start taking care of our politicians in the sense, like be responsible for the people that we're putting in place. We need to inform ourselves. We need to, and we need to be kind and be kind to ourselves and be kind to other people. Welcome to the Wild Foundation Podcast, Voices of Wilderness. Through the stories our guests share, you'll learn about how we can and must protect wilderness for a healthy future. We hope to leave you a little more inspired to speak out, take action, make a difference, and find solutions to the biodiversity and climate crises. Let us take you on a journey through the different aspects of wilderness. It's different stories, approaches, and definitions in different parts of the world with the people who work every day to fight for its protection. In this episode, we're honored to have Javiera Calisto Ovalle, an environmental attorney and campaigner with a decade of experience in global conservation joining us. Javiera shares profound insights into how the law shapes our wilderness weaving together ocean law, international environmental law, and human rights. Come with us to explore her close collaborations with local communities and discover the intrinsic value of these partnerships for the preservation of our natural wonders. Join us for a delightful exploration into the legal and community dimensions of wilderness on today's episode. Let's dive in. Okay. Hello. Hello. We are joined today by the wonderful and the incredible Javiera Calisto Ovalle. We are so excited to get into this conversation with you. You have such an amazing background of experience and just passion for this world and this environmental world, and we cannot wait to pick your brain. Welcome to Voices of Wilderness and to the podcast. Can you please share a little bit about yourself for our audience? Hi, Jackie. Hi, Julia. Thank you so much for this invitation. I have to say that I met Julia in a summer <laughs> in the Monaco Ocean Week, so it's so great to meet again. So a little bit about me. I'm a lawyer's background, but I'm a, I love nature. I think that's, you know, sort of like my first motivation. I'm a campaigner at heart. I'm no longer a lawyer, I have to say. I'm currently working in philanthropy. So I think I've been super lucky to see the different lengths from, you know, like a litigator, then a campaigner, and now, you know, being in the backseat, kind of like looking for to support organizations all over the world when it comes to marine conservation and at the same time making sure that we really, really benefit people when, when protecting nature. It's so wonderful. I mean, right off the bat, I do want to ask, what drew you to marine work specifically? In a way, it's going to sound like super cliche, but I used to spend all of my summers, you know, at the beach doing escalobas. The Spanish speakers will understand me. So basically, that's like bathing into the ocean and then you get super cold because I come from the Pacific Ocean, which is really, really cold. So we will swim and then it's super cold and then you just line on the sand that it's hot. And so the sand gets thick into, into you. 
So that's why you look like an escalopa, which is this kind of meat, like Argentinian meat, you know? And then you're covered by sand, and then you will come back to the ocean to get rid of, and then you will bathe, and you will do over and over and over that, you know, that same experience. So I've always loved the oceans and, and the mountains. My, my father always told me, respect the oceans and the mountains, I, you know. And so as a law student early in my career, I knew that I wanted to be an environmental lawyer because, I don't know, there were other interesting things. I thought that tax law was very strategic, but I didn't want to spend all of my heart and efforts in making, you know, a company to pay less tax. So very early in my career, I took all of the courses related to environmental law, which were not that many. So I, most of the courses that I was able to take were related to human rights law. Because not that long ago, most of the protection of the environment was made through the protection of other human rights, such as the human rights to, to life, to equality, to property. And then, you know, through the protection of those rights, you were able to protect nature. And so, and so this is, you know, like those were my beginnings from having, you know, a great, great parents that really value that nature, that put me in contact with nature very early in my life. And then at the same time, being super clear in my career that what I wanted to do was, you know, something meaningful. And so, yeah, those were my starts at, you know, following my path in life. <laughs> well, I love it. I inter- Julia and I always joke because we are very much ocean marine women. I live in a landlocked state, which is not ideal for my ocean-loving heart. But... I just got back from a trip to the Bahamas with my family and I, I was like a fish. They were joking. They were like, she touches everything. She goes in, she looks at everything. But there's something about the underwater world that is so captivating and so amazing. So I love to have your insight on that because that's one of the things that I find the most fascinating about the work that you do. Because the ocean is a very largely unregulated and unknown place as well. So it needs a lot of attention. A question that we do ask all of our guests, because of course, Wild Foundation is all about wilderness. We would love to know what does wilderness mean to you? What does it look like? How does it smell? What feelings does it invoke? Where do you feel closest to it? Just whatever wilderness means to you, we'd love to hear from you on that. So, so the, the memory that I mentioned, I, I think, you know, that smell of the ocean and the sun, but also when you come back home and you will be able to, you know, have a fire at home. I don't know, like a chimney, you know, uh, where because at the cities, at least in Chile, that's not allowed. But at the beach, you're allowed to have, and so that smells like it's it's super familiar, and I love it. But at the same time, when I think of the wilderness, I also think like sort of like the connection to the body. Like if we're, you're in the wilderness, it's super usual that you're going to be walking and you're going to be super mindful about the moment that you're living. And so when it comes to wilderness, I don't know, I live in a city and I've always lived, you know, in, in cities. But every time you walk and you can put attention to the trees and the leaves and those smells after the rain and so anything that connects your body to nature, I think that's what it's like, those like, Small connections to the wilderness. So obviously it can mean to be really in the wild, 
or you know, like diving, for instance, really, really, really far away and, and, and disconnected to everything. But at the same time, as humans, we need to find those, you know, regular connections to the wilderness. So even now that I'm, I'm living in Geneva, I'm walking, you know, through the city and then there is, you know, trees. And I can, you know, watch them and, and feel the gratitude of seeing nature. I think those bits of wilderness are super relevant in, in our daily lives. And we really need to find those moments where we're connected to our bodies and what we're seeing and, and to be mindful. But because I feel like, you know, most of us have works where we see and screen all day and we're, you know, attached to our phones and we are so addicted to our phones and, and, you know, to Netflix. And so all of those momentums where we disconnected to machines and connected to nature, those are moments with the, with the wild and we need those moments to really like distress ourselves and be, li- be alive in a way. Well, you bring up such a good point that you've lived, at, you do this line of work, but you've lived in a city your whole life and so many people don't do this line of work and have lived in the city their whole lives. And that's part of, at least in my opinion, not speaking for anybody else, but that's part of where we've lost some of the connection to wilderness. So it really is taking in those small moments of every day and being able to find a way to connect. And I know that some of those trees in in Geneva on the walk along the lake, they are cool trees. So there's really an opportunity to connect with the really cool wilderness, even within a city. So I, I just, I think it's, it's, you make an important point there. That even if we are in the middle of a very urban area, there's still the opportunity to reflect, get in touch and connect with that for sure. I mean, we, need, we really need to make those efforts, you know, during the weekends. And I feel, you know, so privileged to be able to make those efforts to go to the to other places during the weekend. Not not everybody can do that, but we, we need to make those efforts as society for, you know, our health in general, like physical, ecological health, like nature really, really decreased the levels of stress that we're currently living. So the people that can do it, we're privileged and we need to be super thankful about it. And the people that are not doing it or can't really do it, we need to, you know, help them find those ways to nature or for, you know. <laughs> yeah, no, Absolutely. We actually did a really interesting podcast episode recently about the benefits of, well, forest bathing specifically, but just quite literally the tangible benefits that nature provides to us physically. It was mind-blowing. But so I'd love to get into a little bit of your legal background in ocean law, because that's an area that we really haven't discussed on this podcast. And it is so fascinating. And I am by no means an expert of the law. So I'm really intrigued on, you know, with your background and with your expertise in ocean law and in international environmental law and human rights, how do you feel that the law really impacts wilderness and the protection of these places? Because I think some people can get so, I want to use the right word here, but not jaded or, or, or you know, but they, they don't necessarily believe that there will be a lot of change coming from the law in the next few years. But how do you see that? No, they are right. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, like when 
So my first job was in a law firm, a very big law firm. I would represent big mining companies. So it was a great school, you know, to see like the inside. But then I started working at Oceana as a campaigner and I thought that law will change the world. You know, if we have good laws in place and if we, you know, enforce them, then we'll save the oceans and we will save, you know, nature. And that's, that's not true at all. But neither with science and neither with communications. Like we need to have all of those tools in place. Politics are so relevant. And the thing is, you know, like it's many times different professionals work in, in asylums, really like isolated without communicating. But, you know, like, so doing what you do, it's super relevant, but communicating what you do and talking to decision makers that, that hold a lot of power, that's super, super relevant. So law and policy are just like one outcome that I really believe on because it's the one that I understand the most. But one of my biggest or probably the biggest lesson that I learned is that you need to be political and, you know, we need to influence people to go and vote and really understand and choose very wisely their, you know, politicians, their the decision makers, basically. And they need to be responsible people and they need to be people that align with your principles and your values. And that when I say that they are responsible, one of the things that I've learned so much is that there are no, you know, this is something that probably most of us know, but there are not silver bullet solutions for environmental problems. So many times some politicians will say, okay, yeah, yes, I will, I don't know, ban plastics. And then but what about the, the carbon emissions? Don't get me wrong, I campaign a lot of years against single-use plastics and that's completely fine. But at the same time, we need politicians that really understand the whole spectrum of, of problems. And so, you know, communications, if you're not communicating the work that you're doing, then nobody will never know about your work. So that's why communications are so important. And then science is, you know, a key tool because science will give us the solutions. But we need science that talks to people, that understands the problem of people, and then and can really, you know, and people are the ones that are going to understand their problems at the same time. So if we are only hearing science from a very, you know, scientific point of view without hearing communities, then probably the solutions that we're going to bring are not going to be the ones that are going to solve these systematic problems that we're facing. And so, yeah, law is one of the, the tools out there. It's just one of the tools out there. So we need to really, you know, make sure that people, we are working together in, in solving this, these problems. But, okay, being a little bit more, more faithful towards law. <laughs> so one of the things that is super important is that litigation is the last instrument that we use. So we use litigation and strategic litigation just as a way to, to show problems to really, really emphasize that we have problems. But what we need are laws that are in place that never use courts. So we need to have laws that are so well put together and that the sanctions are so relevant and so deterrent for the legal actions that in the end, the whole system works. And so, you know, to put it more like less theoretical, one, one of the things, like I work a lot with plastics, as I said, and so we needed a law that could really be enforced, you know? So basically what, what, what I really liked about this law is what it was against single-use plastic, but it was against any 
disposable items. So for instance, if you go to a McDonald's in Chile in two years' term, now maybe it's even one year term, every item that they will give you will have to be reusable. And so this is really, you know, like changing the paradigm because we realized we had a problem with disposable plastic, but we also had a problem with disposable items in general. So the massive consumption of products, basically. So we already passed that law and McDonald's is giving a big fight back. They wanted to change the law. But we know that in other countries, such as in England, I think, or McDonald's already has a system of, you know, reusable items. So we have, you know, first class consumers and second class consumers or third class. So there are different, you know, consumers have different rights depending on their countries. And that's very, like, you know, it really, really, really makes me very angry. You know, we have different citizens with different rights, and that cannot happen. But one of the things that the law did is that any person can enforce the law in an easy way. And so we are collaborating with thousands and thousands of people and chains of municipalities, which are these, you know, like, I don't know if yeah, you understand municipalities, what it means, right? Like, so basically like very low level entities that are really connected to people. So their work and with the work of a coalition of NGOs and a coalition of people and a coalition of restaurants was to do the right things, any of them can enforce the law easily. So these are the kind of mechanisms that I'm talking. And for instance, in fishing, these mechanisms also exist, which are called community-based enforcement. So a small, small-scale fishers that can be benefit from, you know, a policy are also the ones taking care that that policy is in place. So, for instance, that trawlers cannot enter into their exclusive insure zones. And so this is the kind of law that I would like to be seeing, the law that we know that is it's not going to stay just in paper, but it's really going to be enforced by communities that don't only have the legal power, but also the means to do this enforcement. Right. And so I have like a thousand questions based on what you just said. My first question, just going off of that idea of local communities and really bringing it down for this top level law and, and this kind of theoretical thing that people, well, I don't want to say regular people, but just the average person might not necessarily feel like they have control over. How do you go about, I mean, collaborating with these local communities, especially in, in smaller fishing towns? I mean, in Chile, it's one thing to, if we're talking about McDonald's, there's a lot of people coming in and out of those restaurants and, you know, building awareness there is a little different from working with truly local communities. How does that impact the local communities, their livelihoods, their future? And I mean, you know, you talked about the different rights between citizens. How does it empower them to live a better, healthier life that is sustainable in the long term? So that's a tough question, but basically, so I used to have the role of, uh, I used to, you know, be a part of an NGO, and something that we really tried to do was connect the ideas of, you know, coastal communities, fishers, and, you know, bring their voice to decision makers. And so because as an NGO and as a lawyer, I understood the the laws that were in place, for instance, to access to information or to access to those authorities, for instance, asking lobbying meetings to them and knowing how to influence them. But we were not necessarily bringing you know, like an organization's idea. So that organization would really represent the idea of communities. 
because this is one of the key things that I would like to highlight is that if you if you manage, you know, to pass a law or if you manage to have a regulation in place, if communities are not really supporting this idea or if communities are not really backing up, you know, these policies, those policies are not going to stay in place. That's why it's so important to really hear, you know, the voice of, of coastal communities and communities and then sort of like translate their, their words into policy outcomes to reach these high-level, you know, decision makers. And so I think it's super relevant for, for NGOs to hear, you know, the voices of, of communities and, and relevant actors and sort of like translate those into, because it's, obviously it's hard to, to approach, you know, these high-level authorities. It's, how, it's hard to amend a law. It's hard to pass a law. And so this is why probably, you know, this is the reason why NGOs exist, to make sure that science is heard, to make sure that communities are heard, to make sure that all relevant actors are heard, because NGOs don't have the solutions. They can bring a lot of expertise in different topics, but NGOs have a, real, a big, you know, relevant role in, in making sure that, that, as I said, that communities are, are heard. Right, absolutely. Bringing their voices to the forefront of these conversations because they're the ones that are most impacted by these things. So I'm so curious. So what was the moment in your life where you were like, that, where that switch happened from lawyer to campaigner? So basically, in Oceana, they taught me how to campaign. So basically, the word campaigning in Spanish doesn't exist. I mean, it exists, but it exists like in another context, in a work context, I guess. So, but I, as I said, like I thought law was going to solve the, the world. And then like Oceana really taught me how to be a campaigner and how to be goal-oriented and how to really focus on a specific goal. But it's very interesting because I think that campaigning, it really exists in like it has different meanings depending so on where you are like the word campaigning meaning like fighting and being like aggressive doesn't make sense in the global south i guess it perhaps makes sense in some campaigns there are black or white but most of the of the projects are not black and, and white you know something that i learned is that the best way to win campaigns and to make projects happen was about bringing solutions to the table a lot of global south countries it's not always is the case that they have the political will to take action. Many times it's the lack of, you know, not having staff, enough staff to do the work. And so many times NGOs have the, have the you know, the capacity to help the government, but at the same time NGOs need to be brave. And so they cannot just follow what states want. And so in some, in, well, I have to I have to distinguish in some countries it's very dangerous to be brave but in some countries if you have the possibility to be brave it just need to be brave and at the same time need to find a way to collaborate with states and so at least for my personal experiences experience that was the best way of winning campaign bringing solutions to the table being professional bringing the science bringing the communication bringing the people and that was you know the best way to to have victories and you talk about this aspect of collaboration, which at Wild we so firmly believe in, because we don't believe that one agent, one person, one organization will change the world. But this aspect of collaboration, do you have a, a story? I mean, of course, I'm sure you do have a million stories, but do you have one great example of 
a success story with collaboration that really resonates with you? So something that I, I think it's super relevant for me is that each organization is different and they really should embrace, you know, what they enjoy doing, what they're good at doing, you know? And so I think collaborating means that we're all having in mind a particular goal, but the different paths or different ways to achieve that goal it's what really should be embraced in collaboration, you know? So to make sure that every action that you make, you know, it's aligned in a way to the other actions that others are taking. So you wouldn't, you know, like, I don't know. So that's why it's so important to be coordinated for, specifically for political timing. But at the same time, so we should also embrace differences. So within this, the plastic law that I was mentioning, you know, to sort of like follow the same idea, we did, you know, this fantastic collaboration between different NGOs and they will bring the ideas on how to better implement the law. So, so organizations are really good, for instance, are working with restaurants and they will be the ones working with restaurants. Some youth, you know, like youth organizations have a completely different idea on how to influence, you know, young uh, activists. So they wanted, you know, they wanted to create songs about it or they just wanted so. You know, like and some others were like very technical. So for instance, you know, another organization wanted to bring the idea of using polls, you know, to, to have the attention of media. So I remember Beast Chile had that idea to really emphasize that and that, you know, the results that came after that were, were super impressive. Then at the same time, some other organizations such as Zeus, was it's really good at working at Congress. And they really like to influence Congress. So they did, you know, a seminar on that. So each organization were bringing like different elements that would really work well, well together. Some organizations are tougher than others in the sense that they really like to, you know, use the stick. And some other organizations are really good at bringing the carrot. And so they use different elements and they use the creativity of each NGO to make this happen. So in a way, I think many times when we think of collaborations and partnerships and, and, you know, these kind of associations, we think of something that moves very slow because every decision needs to make, be made, at, you know, with consensus. And I don't think that's necessarily. I think we should really embrace dynamic, but at the same time, respectful collaborations. So everybody will have a space to do what they, you know, what they like to do. But at the same time, be aware that if we work together, we are bigger together, uh, we're stronger together. But, it, but it's obviously, it's super challenging to find equilibrium between being respectful and mindful to other organizations and at the same time have that freedom. So, you know, so that's why we need to have, you know, leaders, leaders within organizations that are kind, that hear, that listen to what people want that no one to, you know, leave space for others to allow others to make decisions. But, but it's difficult because obviously people, we're difficult. We think differently. We have different backgrounds. The effect that we can have in the world, it's much bigger if we collaborate, as you were saying. Like no sort of player will would have a victory or if they, they are able to have a victory, it's going to be a small victory. And it goes back to what you were saying before, communication is so important and every group communicates differently and targets different audiences and it's so critical to tap into that. And where one organization shines, another might not. But in order to hit a lot of different audiences with these messages, we need to work together 
to get those messages out in the most effective ways possible. So, and we need to um, we need to know how to share. You know, if somebody like we, we need to acknowledge the good job that other organizations are doing, and it's complicated because many times you're competing for funding, you're competing, you know, to have that victory, you're competing to be in the newspapers cover, but at the same time, you know, the environmental world is a small world. And so if, you, if you're a good person, if you're kind, if you're respectful, people will know that. And if you share the victories of other, people will know. And at some point, it's going to come back to you. And so I think we have to face and deal with problems that are so big. So I'm sure there is room for everybody to work, you know, to fight those problems. And so and, and we need to understand that the bigger picture, the long term, like, If one day you have a bad reputation because of be doing something bad, that's going to stick with your career and people will know about the bad things that you did and people will know about the good things that you did too. So we need to work with ethics and we need to be, you know, we need to be good people at the end because we're going to collaborate. We're going to keep running into each other, you know, maybe not tomorrow, but it's Super important to be good at people, not because of the value of being good, but also because at one point people will remember that you did something good for them. And so it's so important to and to make the pie bigger, you know, when it comes to negotiation. Like, you know, this is a term used in negotiations. So you can you can make win-win situations. You can you can embrace those differences, but at the same time make sure that everybody wins in a way. So I don't know if I'm being that clear. Well, that, that makes perfect sense, at least to us, because we live and breathe that sort of mentality. But that makes perfect sense. And I think it's not something that's done enough in the environmental world and needs to be focused on more. Absolutely. And I think we're seeing it much more that organizations really, really are complimenting each other, working together. And I think that's fantastic. But it's so important to have that in mind, you know, we are facing so many challenges and so many issues that we need to solve. And I don't know, I feel like we're running out of time and we don't have those solutions in place. And the worst part is that we're giving the bill to the next generation. It's not us that are gonna, it's, that is not going to pay the bill. It's going to be our kids, you know, and it's so unfair. This is like, this is like going to a restaurant, you know ordering for the most expensive dishes and then pretending, you, you know, your youngest your own son or your youngest brother or sister to pay the bill. Like, nobody would ever do that. And this is what humanity is doing, you know? Ask for the next generation to pay the bill. And once again, it's not just, you know, any kind of, like, the next generation. It's going to be the most vulnerable people in from the next generations, the ones who are going to pay the bill. And... This is just awful, you know? This is just something that... So we need to be able to collaborate to solve this urgent problem. Yeah. And so I guess in asking what would be one tip that you would leave the audience with in terms of how they might be able to carry something forward or, or act, is that your one tip? Or do you have another nugget of wisdom to share? Or, you know, just because I think everybody especially our audience and our listeners, they tune in because they wonder, how can I be a part of this solution? How can I make an impact? And in your opinion, what is the number one thing that they can do? So, you know, thinking of the audience that it's listening to, you know, this podcast, 
probably they're doing a lot of personal efforts, you know, like they shop responsibly when it comes to, I don't know, clothing, they buy things, they probably don't eat meat, they recycle, they use reusable packaging, you know. But I guess the most important part is to vote, you know, to vote and really, really, really empower those leaders that have a conscience that there are, you know, there that there are good people that and so Obviously, when you think about this, it's not something trendy, you know, like everybody's tired, sick and tired of politics. But we need to start taking care of our politicians in the sense, like, be responsible for the people that we're putting in place. We need to inform ourselves. We need to, and we need to be kind and be kind to ourselves and be kind to other people. I think that's such a great tip because I also, you know, we start thinking about voting at the highest levels. But really, it starts with voting on the people in your community. And people sometimes brush off those smaller elections, but they're critical to creating the change that then builds upwards as well. So I couldn't agree with you more. But I do want to ask you uh, to end it on a, a little bit of a higher note. What gives you hope for the future? And some people don't love the word hope, but what keeps you going? What fuels that passion and that fire? And what gives you optimism for a better future? I don't think I'm going to end up in, the, in a positive note. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> That's okay. I, I was having a conversation with a colleague the other day, a colleague from, a, from an NGO back in Chile. Well, it's an international NGO, but he was telling me that he's hopeless, like that we are not going to achieve the, you know, the climate change goals at least. And what really keep me going is the people that are, that are going to suffer this, you know, like real people that are going to suffer and that inequalities are going to get bigger and bigger. And, and, you know, I come from the global south and, and to think that poverty is going to get worse for the people that have already suffered. When we think about songs like, Back, back in Chile, and, and this is obviously all over the world, but there are so many sacrifice zones, which are zones that are so polluted that people are like physically dying from pollution, from cancer, from so many diseases. And so when I think that the lives of those people are going to get even worse, when I think of people that are not going to be able to access to water because of climate change, when I think of, I don't know, communities that are being harmed because of antibiotic resistance, because in the global north we're eating salmon, things that we don't eat. It's just like, it kills me to think that those livelihoods are going to get worse and worse. So I don't, So these days I'm not living because of the hope. I'm living to, to make the efforts for those people, you know? And so sorry to me to be so negative, but I think we need to really have a balance to work hard, re work really hard, to make sure that we do, you know, like really, really, whatever we do, whatever we are, we need to work hard to make sure that we found those solutions and that we, you know, and that, you know, we need to fight until the end, until the last bit. But at the same time, we need to be kind to ourselves and to, we need to take measures to protect ourselves. And so to finish what we were talking in the beginning, we need to go for those long walks. We need to dance and listen to the music you know, hold and give hugs to the people that we love because, you know, we don't know how long we're going to live. And, and sorry, I'm being so sensitive, but for some reason this year, a lot of close people died and they were young. They were like in the beginning of their 40s, you know, and so we don't know how long we're going to live. And so we need to live, you know, to the to the fullest, basically. Well, you know, and and 
I thank you for sharing that because you you say that it might be negative, but really I think it sheds light on this thread of humanity throughout our world that we sometimes forget about and don't put emphasis on because we think it's a huge world and we're focused on what we're doing and our life. But the reality is we're all connected and the, the wild world is connected and we're a part of that. And so I think what you just said just really emphasizes your passion for this this global community that deserves equality and justice and a beautiful, sustainable life. And um, I think that is really important to emphasize because a lot of people tend to forget that. So thank you. Even if you think it was negative, I think it was truly a, a, a really important message to um, to end on because it's not done enough, you know, in our world. And to have empathy and compassion for those who don't live in our same situations because the world is big and people live differently everywhere. But it doesn't matter that if you live one way or a different way that your life shouldn't be valued as much as somebody else's, you know. So thank you for shedding light on that. I really appreciate it. Javiera, it's been absolutely an honor to speak with you today. I The floor is open if you have any other comments or um, if any other topics that you'd like to cover. But truly, this has been such a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. No, thank you for the invitation and, you know, to to be open these spaces, you know, to bring voices, different voices from different parts of the world to just, you know, communicate and share ideas. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's been, you know, my pleasure to share some of my ideas. And, and, you know, to continue bringing different voices, you know, like diversity, it's super relevant because it makes us, you know, like put ourselves in different point of views that sometimes we're, you know, just thinking on, on our perspectives. Well, thank you for sharing different perspectives with us today. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Find us on social media through the Wild Foundation. And if you're feeling inspired, don't hesitate to share this podcast with those around you and maybe even give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. We appreciate the support more than you know, and it's that support that allows our work to continue and evolve.